Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here together today. Thank you for your word which speaks powerfully to us. And we pray now that by your spirit we may have eyes to hear and ears, uh, eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you are saying to us as we seek to live as disciples of Christ in the world. Empower us for this task, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as we continue this series on the book of Daniel uh, and we think uh, of that uh, really wonderful story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, uh, I want to start by uh, thinking of some more contemporary um, moments of defiance of power. There's a very uh, famous picture, I think I've got it here for you to have a look at, of August Landmesser, uh, a worker at the uh, Blom and Voss shipyard in Hamburg in Germany. And in 1936, uh, as uh, Adolf Hitler rolled by to say g'day, uh, everyone uh, gave the mandatory g'day back uh, in the form of a Hail Hitler and uh, old mate August was having none of it. He was later imprisoned and eventually he was drafted into forced military service where he was killed in action. High price to pay for standing up for what you believe in. Or perhaps uh, a little more relatable, certainly uh, a little more challenging to me, uh, but again, uh, in, the, uh, Ger in Germany during the Second World War and the period le leading up to it, uh, the pastor Paul Schneider, who uh, is not as famous as a, another member of the Confessing Church, which was kind of the, the church that um, stayed true to the Bible instead of bowing to Nazi power, uh, and you've probably heard of the other guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, this guy, Paul Schneider, equally impressive, uh, he constantly stood up for and spoke up for the truth of God's word and against the evils of the Nazis. So there's this great story where uh, a, a Nazi youth died uh, and uh, they, they ran the funeral and he was involved and the Nazi official got up and basically said, this guy's gone straight to heaven because he's a Nazi youth and Schneider got up and said, well, I don't think so, that's not how it works. Uh, you can imagine how that went for him. He ends up in jail and uh, in a concentration camp and uh, again, famously, uh, he was in isolation often, but uh, whenever he found himself near a window, apparently, he would just kind of lean out and just shout out the message of God's salvation through Jesus Christ, uh, even though he knew it would cause uh, another beating and eventually they gave him a lethal injection. He's got this great quote uh, where he says, uh, speaking of the, the Hail Hitler, and of course, Hail in German literally translate to, translates to salvation. And he said, obviously not in English, but the English translation, he said, uh, I cannot salute this criminal symbol. You can only receive salvation from the Lord and not from a human being. Defiance of despotic, despotic godlike, powerful men who think they run the world. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because that's what Daniel and his friends were dealing with. 
a powerful, egotistical, despotic leader called King Nebuchadnezzar. He's so powerful that he's now sort of ruling the known world. He's defeated Judah, uh, and we know that he's prone to exercising his power. We saw back in chapter 2 that he was going to, uh, that he decreed that all the wise men get cut up into pieces if they didn't tell him what his dream was and interpret it. And now we see him declaring that everyone in the kingdom ought to bow down and worship this idol, uh, uh, this idol of him, of him. Now, this is rather astonishing that Nebuchadnezzar would do this, because we know back from chapter two, one, uh, the, the kind of belief of the day that the gods do not live among us. That's what the uh, the, uh, the the wise men have told King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 11, when the king, what the king asks, this is uh, the wise men speaking to, de- to, to King Neb, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods and they do not live among us. And we essentially have Nebuchadnezzar now saying, yes, they do. I'm God. But not only that, at the end of chapter two, you'll remember uh, Nebuchadnezzar has had Daniel come in reveal his dream to him, interpret it for him, and Nebuchadnezzar has, we read in verses 46 and 47 of chapter 2, fallen prostrate before Daniel, paid honour to him, and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Then he said, verse 47, this is King Neb, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to, re- you are able to reveal this ministry, uh, this mystery. Daniel, uh, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, has seen the powerful work of God. He's been helped out by God, and the very next thing we read that he does is mandate the worship of him, the worship of idols. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. It's interesting too, isn't it? Because you'll remember back in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of an idol uh, made of gold, of which he was the golden head. And it's like he sort of forgot the rest of the dream and just thought, how good's that? I, I, I'm, a golden, I'm a golden statue. Let's make one and, and, and worship it. Forgetting the whole, you know, rock smashing it into a thousand pieces and the wind blowing it away like chaff. Well, we read in verses four to six, Nebuchadnezzar mandates the worship of God, uh, of this idol, uh, and uh, issues the punishment. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, this is a threat to the people of God, isn't it? This worship of an idol. And you can imagine too that uh, the people of God probably were already facing some difficulty as they were foreigners and outsiders. We all know how people relate to foreigners and outsiders. There's a, there's a scepticism. Sometimes we get, people get scared of people who are different from them. They get jealous if they succeed. Let's not have any more refugees lest they steal our jobs phrase we've heard 
from time to time, I'm sure. And I suspect there's a little bit of that kind of undercurrent here because uh, as King Nebuchadnezzar decrees that uh, people worship idols, this idol, uh, the, the other wise men, the, the Babylonian wise men, who, are, who I assume are, are jealous of Daniel and his friend's position, uh, come forward and denounce the Jews, verse 8. And they say to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 12, there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. They get dropped right in it. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the despotic psychopath that he is, is outraged. Verse 13, furious with rage. He summons them and they're brought before the king. And we see here, I guess, Nebuchadnezzar trying to be reasonable in the next uh, couple of verses because uh, instead of just bringing them in and uh, throwing them into the furnace straight away, he says, I'll give you one more chance. If this is, is it true that you're not worshipping and serving my gods? Well, Let's, let's have the music play and then you can bow down in front of me. I'll see that this rumour's not true uh, and uh, it'll all go well for you. Or you can choose not to and you'll get thrown into the fire. And interestingly, at the end of, of that uh, statement in verses 14 and 15, he, he poses this question. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He's setting himself up as God. He's imposing the worship of idols, the worship of him uh, over his kingdom. And now he's got these people who refuse to obey and he's saying, you need to obey me because I'm the most powerful thing that there is. And if I declare that you're going to die in a fire, who can save you from my hand? What God can save you from my hand? I am God, he says, and I am going to kill you. Now let me tell you that it really must have looked a bit like that for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. That uh, in their context, as they see this powerful king who has uh, had victory over them uh, when they were back in Judah, uh, who has continued to grow in, in power and authority, who's no doubt done all sorts of other murderous things as he's exercised his power, uh, it must have looked like they were on the road to death. But as Nebuchadnezzar poses that question, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? These three men uh, say back some of the most beautiful words of Scripture. Uh, Some of my favourite verses. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, verse 16 through 18, reply to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. So there is a God who can deliver us. And then they say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We 
don't really care who you are, King Nebuchadnezzar. You're not God. You're not in charge. God is. He can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're going to continue to do what is right and follow him. It's powerful stuff. You're not God. Our God is. And we will trust him no matter what. And King Nebuchadnezzar is infuriated by this stubborn refusal to submit to him. We read in verse 19, he's furious so much so that he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. It's like a a visual representation of his burning rage as, as these people would defy him with these words. And it's so hot, we read, don't we, that some of the strongest men in Babylon's army who bind these men up to throw in the fire, as they're kind of chucking them in, they drop dead because the heat is so strong. And one would assume that, likewise, on the throw, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego should have dropped dead too. Like, if the soldier's dropping dead, they ought to be dropping dead kind of on the way in as well. But of course, something miraculous happens. The God whom Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have declared is powerful to save demonstrates his power. We read how King Nebuchadnezzar sees this occurring. He leaps to his feet in amazement and asks, didn't we throw three men into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Something miraculous is occurring. Now, we could spend some time here thinking about who this fourth person in the fire is, an angel, Jesus, but the the simple truth is we don't know. Uh, But what we do see here is God proving that he is sovereign over all people, that he is powerful in all circumstances and that he will save and protect his people. Uh, You might have heard a sermon on this passage before where, uh, and it's, re- it's really tempting to do it, let me tell you as a preacher, to start talking about how God is with us in the flames. Um, that, 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 that here we see that no matter what you're facing, uh, even if it's the seven times hotter furnace of King Nebuchadnezzar, God is going to be with you. And of course that is true. And we see that in places like Romans where we just were, where we read that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But that's not primarily what, primarily what this is about. This is about um, uh, 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 who God is. And, and, and that he is powerful to save. That he is sovereign and that he will not be thwarted by some mere king. And so as Nebuchadnezzar witnesses this miracle of four humans in the, or four people in the, in the fire, He calls them out in verse 26. He sees that they're totally untouched by the fire and he is truly amazed. 
He's said, no God can possibly save you. They've said, yes, there is a God who can. And now Nebuchadnezzar says in verses 28 and 29, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego <laughs> be cut up into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. He really likes doing that to people who don't do what he wants. Uh, for no other God can save in this way. Wow. Now, as one scholar reflects on this miracle, he actually points uh, something I found quite profound out. He says uh, that th though there is this miracle of, of three men surviving a fire, he says the real miracle actually happened before that. Walter Luthi, he says, that there are three men who do not worship in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian... that there are three men who don't worship an idol in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. The miracle of the confessing church that the three were not devoured by fire is no greater miracle. Suppose the fiery furnace had consumed them, the real miracle would have happened just the same. God has empowered these men to stand in the face of true worldly power and say no and accept the consequences, whatever they may be. Well, as Nebuchadnezzar responds by saying that people need to, you know, respect Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego's God or they'll get cut into pieces. It kind of reminds us of uh, his response back in chapter 2, where, again, he, 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 he says, wow, to Daniel, your God is, is, a, is, a, is, is cool. Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And this time he doesn't say, and anyone who doesn't agree gets cut into a thousand pieces. He just puts Daniel into a position of power. And in both cases, we're, we're seeing something of Nebuchadnezzar's journey, where he goes from uh, uh, having no idea that, there, that this God has any power, to understanding it, to define him by setting up idol worship, to seeing God's power revealed again, and yet he never really arrives... At, at faith and trust in this God, even though God keeps showing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. And what we'll see next week is what it takes for Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself before God. We'll talk more about that next week. What I want to do now, though, is reflect on this wonderful story and think about what it means for us. And I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, what we worship matters. And not only that, but what people think we worship matters. You see, I think that it could have been very easy for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to justify bowing down to the idol, something like this. They could have said, hmm, okay, if we don't do this, we're going to get thrown into a burning blazing fire that doesn't really seem to help anyone so how about we just go out there and do it with everyone else but while we bow down we we will pray to God 
and uh, then uh, we won't be committing idol worship and we won't be getting killed. I think that kind of thinking happens a lot with Christians. We, we, we try and think about how we can kind of worship God and not kind of get ourselves into too much trouble or be too offensive to anyone around us. But of course, for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, what they realise is that if they go out with everyone else and bow down to this idol with, with everyone else, even though in their heart of hearts and they, you know, me and God know what's going on, Everyone else is like, oh, cool, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego worship idols like us. To not, so, so to go and bow down would communicate, even if they sort of worked out some way that they thought it would be okay, to go and do it would actually be to communicate worship of the king, worship of the idol and a lack of trust and faith in God. So I think what we see there is that how we live in the world matters. Our actions communicate where we have our trust placed. And of course, therefore, what's more difficult for us today, though, is to think about what the golden statues of 21st century Australia are, because, of course, there is no one mandating that we roll on down to Anzac Park and bow down at the Cenotaph or something like that. So we don't have to kind of uh, say, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to come up here to St Aidan's instead. But there are sort of all sorts of more subtle idols in the world and, and many things that are good. Things like family, money, power, sex food. These are all things that are good gifts from God to be used rightly, but that our world puts into position number one and asks us to bow down to. And so what we need to do is to think about what are the idols which my friends and family worship and what does it look like for me to live in such a way that demonstrates that I worship God and not these created things. And it's really hard to get specific because it can be so circumstantial. But let me take sport as an example. Uh, You'll know because you have to suffer through my sermons that I'm a fan of sport. Um, and uh, particularly I don't, don't, don't mind the AFL, although I haven't followed it too much this year because my team sucks. Um, and uh, uh, you'll also know that AFL can be a huge idol for people, something that they kind of fall down and, and worship. People have shrines in their home, right, to their teams. It, it's crazy. So how does one in Australia engage in something that's good but without it becoming an idol. And how do you communicate that with others? That's tricky to work out, but I, uh, let me think that of, of one way that I've tried to do that uh, is that uh, if football clashes with something that is more important, like church, I try and always choose that over 
uh, over the football. And so a, f a number of years ago, uh, my team was in the grand final and there was a church camp on that I needed to go to and I went to that. And, and it actually exposed a little bit of because I felt sad the whole time because I couldn't watch my team in the grand final. And we lost to West Coast, so I was kind of glad and, you know, God must have paid me back in favour for worshipping him. Um, but for me, that was how I tried to put together worshipping uh, God instead of uh, this thing that can be an idol and trying to communicate to people that what was more important to me. I don't know what it is for you or how it works for you. It, it, it is very circumstantial, but it is important that we think about it and that we don't go for cop-out answers like I described the way Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego could have copped out and just bowed down and worshipped the idol anyway. What we worship matters and what people think we worship when they look at us matters. That's the first thing. The second thing I think we see from this story is uh, a great example of how to have faith under pressure. We will face pressure to bow down to the idols of our day. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego face the pressure because if they don't, they get thrown into a furnace, but also socially, like everyone else is doing it. And yet they choose to remain steadfast in their faith and trust in God and they do so without any presumption of how God will act in response to their faithfulness. You see, one of the great, I think, tragedies of the way many of us can think about faith today is that we say, if we want God to save us from the fiery furnace, then we need to declare that he will beforehand. So we, they kind of want the first part of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's statement without the second bit, the but if not part. They, they, they say, if, if you want God to save you, if you want God to, to, to rescue you, you've just got to have faith and you've just got to name it and you've got to claim it. But that's not what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego do. They're faced with this powerful man who can kill them at any moment. The furnace is right there in front of them and they declare the power of God, absolutely, but they do not presume that God will act as they wish. But that doesn't mean that that somehow undermines his sovereign power and his faithfulness to his people. They are but small pawns in God's large plan. And they just trust that whatever God does, he will do because he is king. As we face pressure, be it the pressure of death, I hope not for any of us, but much more likely the social pressures of lost relationships or lost work as we seek to trust God and, and be clear about who it is we worship in our lives, we too need to trust God, whatever the outcome of us standing up for our faith is. And of course, we have more reason to trust God than even Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did because we live this side of the cross. 
And this side of the cross, we know for certain that this life is not the be-all and end-all. We know that death has been defeated. And we know that death doesn't mean defeat. Jesus died and rose again victorious. God has won a victory over death in Jesus Christ that you and I share in by faith. And so, as we seek to live out our faith with the threat of loss or death, we know that, <laughs> you know, that, that, that has no power over us. For we are with Christ. And we share his victory. Not only that, we know that Jesus has promised that as we trust him day by day, he will give us this day our daily bread. So even if we lose it all, we'll have enough for today. And tomorrow, well, God will sort that out tomorrow. We can put it all on the line for the sake of following Jesus. One more thing about faith under pressure, and that is our attitude. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego don't turn up to King Nebuchadnezzar and say to him, uh, you are violating my rights as a human being by forcing me to bow down to this idol. Um, partly that's a historical fact of time and that, that idea didn't really exist. But they, they, they don't protest their rights and they don't get upset that uh, they've found themselves in this predicament. They simply just stand there, declare powerfully God's sovereign control and stand firm in their conviction that he is faithful, he's powerful to save, but if not, He's still God. And I think there's another lesson in, in that for us as we seek to be faithful under pressure, is that we declare powerfully what we believe, we stand firm in our faith, we trust God, and we just do away with that kind of um, uh, rights-based uh, thinking that I see so much, you've got no right to do this, how dare you, you know, all this stuff. It's just, it's the wrong attitude for faith under pressure. I go to it all the time when I'm talking about this, but Acts 5, there we see the kind of attitude where to have. When the apostles are taken before the Sanhedrin and uh, they get flogged, they get told not to speak about Jesus and they leave rejoicing. And it says... Day after day, they go about from house to house and in the temple courts talking about Jesus all the time. They totally ignore the authorities and just get on with what God has called them to because he's in charge. So, what we worship matters and the way to having faith under pressure is not to protest our rights but to remain steadfast in our trust in God's sovereign hand over us, knowing that he has defeated death and that there is nothing that can separate us from
from here. Well, as we finish, I guess I can think of no better way to finish than simply reminding us of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and those words of faith and trust. So let me just read verses 16 to 18 to you again. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Whatever happens, we will keep on worshipping our God. Amen.